2: It's 11 o'clock, Labor Day. 41 drivers have their work cut out for them. Fireball Roberts, fastest qualifier, starts ninth. He's raced in all 14 Southern 500s. Jim Paschal is another 14-year veteran. He's raced 5,000 miles on this track, but waiting is harder than racing. Buck Baker, the old pro, is the only other veteran of 14 Southern 500s. Tiny Lund, a 260-pound lead foot Nelson Stacy drove a tank in combat. Nothing rattles him. Joe Weatherly, national champion. He's won more races than you can count. Junior Johnson. He drives with a simple strategy, flat out, as far and as fast as she'll go. Fred Lorenzen. He wants to be the first driver to win $100,000 in one year. The pace car leads the way on a warm-up lap. The fastest field in Darlington history moves out to test the track and be tested. There are seven makes of cars running here, Ford, Chevrolet, Mercury, Plymouth, Dodge, and Chrysler. Ford with 17 is the most popular entry. The next time they head into the first turn, they'll be flat out inches apart. One mistake by anybody, and there could be a lot of bent metal on this track. Drowned out by the cheering of some 80,000 fans, the largest crowd ever gathered at this famous mile and three eighths track. This track is a terror for mechanics high banked first and second turns, a fast backstretch, then turns three and four that are almost flat. The fastest way through these turns is high up inches away from the fence. At high speeds, many cars will actually scrape the steel barrier. They're racing, Fred Lorenzen jumps to the lead. junior johnson rides his fender as they roar into the first turn safely through turn one strung out now in the fast groove high on the track lorenzen holds the lead as they hit the back stretch lorenzen's ford sets a record shattering pace for lap one but johnson isn't impressed he swings wide coming off the fourth turn Johnson Chevrolet leads. Lorenzen's first lap was more than 130 miles an hour, but here come the challengers. Marvin Patches, Ford number 21, traveling at fantastic speed, takes third place. Hanging back in eighth position, Fireball Roberts, number 22. Ed Livingston bashes the fence and slides across the track, out of the way of faster cars. There's no danger and no caution flag. The race goes on at record speed. Patch takes second place catching Fred Lorenzen, then sets his sight on the front runner, Junior Johnson. At the end of 25 miles, Patch is five miles an hour faster than last year's record, but he's still second. While the fans are glued to the tremendous battle for first place, Fireball Roberts has slowly moved through the field and is now running fourth. He's turning laps in 37 seconds flat, 133 and a half miles an hour. faster than the track record. Panch is racing down to the checkered flag. As long as there's no traffic, he's all right. But he can't hold power into the turns to pass other cars. Glenn Wood, his mechanic, watches helplessly. Lorenzen keeps the pressure on Roberts, although a lap behind with time running out. Roberts, his tires threadbare and his fuel almost gone, moves out of the way as Lorenzen gets back in the same lap. There's the white flag, one lap to go. Roberts rounds the track for the last time as the crowd comes to its feet, watching racing history as it is made. There's the checkered flag. Fireball Roberts, driving Ford number 22, wins the 14th Southern 500 in record time. 500 miles in 3 hours, 51 minutes. It will take another 500-mile race without a caution flag to tap this amazing speed. Marvin Patch finishes second, a brave and brilliant race behind him. It just wasn't our day, he said, with a little luck we could have won. Roberts rolls his Ford to the winner's circle. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Ah! No doubt about it. i got to get another hat.
1: Now here's
3: something we hope you'll really like.
2: Hi, everybody. This is David Hobbs, racing driver and speed
1: commentator. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk, 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, Motorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you miss missed any of our past shows, 600 and some odd shows, don't forget to check out Nostalgic Radio and Cars, our uh, website and archive page. Good evening, Bobby. How are you?
0: I'm doing well on this Tuesday evening. How
1: about you? Ah, uh, feels good to be sitting back in the uh, studio here. Oh, yeah, you sound a little closer. I sound closer, yeah. Or, I'm, or uh, um... something like...
2: Yeah, for some reason or another, you sound a little taller on radio.
1: <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very good. Uh, I forgot my clips. I had some clips cut out for today, and I blew out of the office without sending them. Hair clips or clips? Clip, 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 clips, Clippers, clip, clip, Clippers, <laughs> Clippers, yeah, radio show, Clipper, Clipper thing. Okay, so uh, yeah, I took a little excursion last week. I was invited to go visit some friends up in uh, in uh, North Georgia, but, South. What was that other? But oh. not in the excursion. No, no, South Carolina <laughs> and Tennessee area. Yes. So I did. We got a few minutes here. We'll talk before we get our guests on the show. Smoky Mountains. The Smoky, the Smoky Mountains. I went there with our. And met a bunch of friends from Mars, from uh, Grassroots Motorsports, A.K.A. Classic Motorsports. And we kind of hung out up there, and uh, we did a little driving. Now we did do the tail of the dragon. I will tell you about the tail of the dragon. Leading up to the tail of the dragon. Now, mind you, there was 20 or 30 crazy car guys. Um, 15 of us had Porsches. The other 15 had a mix of BMWs, um, Benzes, uh, we had an Aston Martin, and my friend Greg brought a 1925 Bentley, which, to me, that was probably the most thrilling event for the whole couple days we were up there tooling around, because he had to work that car. You talk about shit, there's no, it's a four-speed transmission or three, whatever it was, and, uh, you know, it's got a clutch, obviously, but there are no synchronizers in that transmission. And he had to really work that thing, you know, just time it just right, get those gears where they needed to be. Now, mind you, the Smoky Mountain area, we've been up there many times, right, Bobby, when you were younger. We used to go up to Hiawassee and Dahlonega and, and areas like that. And uh, Young Harris. And uh, there's a couple, of, I can't remember. like Lanier and yeah yeah, 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 all that anyway it's an, an an awesome bill from Dawsonville, Dawsonville, georgia and uh the roads are absolutely amazing but what was probably more amazing is the fact that i haven't taken my life in my hands like that since um i don't know can't remember when so we were driving we got up we got up in groups and it was kind of like hey well you know the faster guys let's kind of like do our own little thing well that kind of through attrition we just kind of like found out who the faster guys were. Of course you know, not to be outdone, it's a competitive thing you know, a guy thing, you know. Once you've been on a racetrack, you are a race car guy and you just tend to just instincts take over and you haul butt. So the roads up there were absolutely amazing. We were driving like we were on a racetrack and we were having a blast. I mean we were passing on turns, just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But the roads leading up to the Tale of the Dragon were actually more fun than the actual Tale of the Dragon. The problem with the Tale of the Dragon is is you got a lot of bikers, you got a lot of those sightseers, tourist people. In fact, that whole area, there's areas there that you can drive. They got, you know, that you can when you you, get, you can get this map and it tells you these are the roads to drive. So what you have to watch out for is other people driving like you are driving, and uh, and you just know you do not know who's coming around the current turn, turn, turn. I always manage to stay fast enough in the back. Um, where I could see the guy's left rear quarter or right rear quarter as he's going around the turn, because if there was a sudden stop, I wanted to make sure I had room. But the problem is, on Tail of the Dragon, as an example, there are no guardrails, and it pretty much goes straight down. So if you go off, you go off. Uh, There's a lot of little crosses with little flowers all along the way that dot that whole little stretch from uh, Robbinsville, basically, which is where it starts in, in, uh, I think that's North Carolina, and ends in Tennessee or something like that. But there was a lot of fun, and... uh, would I do it again? Absolutely, possibly. And, uh, but we were doing some pretty pretty serious driving. But the, the other thing we did, we actually got a chance to go over to the Atlanta Motorsports Park, and we got to drive. We were doing touring driving, you know, laps, just, you know, casual laps. But I always managed to stay in the back. The reason I stay in the back of the pack is I either stay up front right in the fastest guy's bumper so I can push him or get pushed. Or get left behind, because a lot of the cars were faster than the one I was driving. But, you know, when you can handle, you can handle. I mean, I was upshifting, downshifting, clutching, heel-towing, the whole nine yards. Everything you do, you learn in racing school, you see on TV, all that kind of stuff. Believe me, we are doing it. And, uh, but on the track, it was kind of cool, because I hung back, and I was, you know, just kind of working on my turns, getting it done. And I hadn't driven fast in a long time, and it was a lot of fun. So I highly encourage that. But you know what it reminded me of? What's the motorsport park, Brady? The uh, the go-kart track up there in Emberness or just south of Emberness there? The Bush- Bushnell Motors? Bush- N- Bush- N- yeah, you know what? If you want to drive fast and have some fun and jar and your teeth on the alligator strips, go to the Bushnell Mars- Motorsports Park because at least you're in a go-kart, you're on a track, you're in a controlled environment, and you can get stupid. Well, kind of stupid. You know, you don't want to hit somebody, you don't want to do anything, because if you do get kind of stupid and crazy, you wind up, they kick you off the track. But it's still a lot of fun. It's a place to go up there and kind of hone your skills. And, you know, and, you're, and you're really racing against the clock, you know. that's, um, It's a lot of fun, and I highly encourage that. In fact, we're going to go there probably within the next couple of weeks or something like that. We're going to diddy-bop on over there. We might even have uh, Brett and his wife on the show to talk a little bit about the uh, Bushnell No Park. So if Park. you're
0: listening to us up there in Zephyr Hills, just point your car north on 301 and... Give yourself 30 minutes and 45 minutes, and you'll be there.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's on 48, is that what it is? Yeah. I, I, I 75 and 48, whatever that exit is. And uh, The Bushnell exit. The Bushnell exit. and not there a bar- <laughs> barbecue place up there? Uh,
0: there's uh, Loves oh. with an Arby's in it. Is, is that what it is? Okay. It's, uh, and there is a barbecue place. There's a barbecue there's place. There's an arcade. It. It's all kinds of stuff.
1: Anyway, so that was that. So, uh, Tale of the Dragon, if you've never done it, you need to do it once. Actually, I did not go fast on the tail of the dragon. I just let everybody kind of cruise because there's motorcycles. Although there was a couple of guys on bikes that were kind of um, trying to bump on the, my, my bumper guards there a little bit. So I gave them a little taste of what Porsches do. And they kind of hung in there pretty good. And then what I did is I pulled over because there's pullovers. And if you're a courteous driver, you pull over and let the fastest guys go by, which is what I did. But I just basically just enjoyed it because the trees, the roads, the, the quiet, the peacefulness. I mean, it was really, really, really nice. I pulled over for about five minutes, and heard absolutely nothing but birds chirping, Mother Nature doing her thing, which was a lot of fun. So I look forward to doing that again sometime. Anyway, um, our friends at Fast Lane Travel will be putting together some tours. So be sure and check out our website. And uh, with Fast Lane Travel, they will be doing some tours and driving tours uh, across the country. So we will keep you informed as to how those progress and what, you know what I forgot to do, Bobby? I forgot to pick a song. Why don't we... I was just looking at that. How about we do something from The Kinks? I don't know why The Kinks. I was listening to The Kinks. Yeah. Um, we do have to do that. Um, we, Well, everybody does Lola, so let's not do Lola. We could do... Well... Okay. Oh, yeah. Not, can we do, not, not, do Lola? Not to...
0: All right. Let's do Lola. I mean, she actually doesn't not in love with the song so that's a good
1: thing yeah I guess, but <laughs> but this is the lola by the kinks not lola by who was the other guy uh barry Manilow or something like that or i don't know oh yes yes somebody else did one yes it was, it the, was. but that was the lola from the 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 mediterranean bar right. mediterranean no not mediterranean south caribbean disco <laughs> yeah, that, yeah we're not doing that because we're not into disco well yeah yes, see, oh, Well, yeah, we, 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 play, play, we play we play plenty can, of disco. have we played disco on the show before Oh my. Hey, you're, you're tuned into have... Nostalgia Getting Cars. We're going to uh, play some low, I guess. Uh, you're tuned into Nostalgic Getting Cars. Here's the kinks. And we'll be right back with our special guest for the evening. And don't touch that dial because we will be right back because this gentleman was on last week and we're going to do part two with Mike Hall from Ship Canassie Raising. Hey, see you in a few. i ask Back, and you're tuned into nostalgic Greening cars. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome back to our show this evening for part two the managing director of Chip Canassi Racing, Mike Hall. Mike, how are you doing this evening?
4: Oh, uh, great, great, thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, now, let's see. uh, We we, kind of ran, we had some technical difficulties last week, so let's pick up where we left out. You were actually talking about your Shelbys, and you sold them. Now, I just want to throw this out at you, since you're up there in Indy, SAC, which is Shelby Automobile American Car Club, which is our Shelby group, uh, 47, takes place in Indy next weekend, the weekend of the 16th. So if you are... Ford slap out of your mind. You've got nothing else to do you know, besides play with a couple of race cars. You might want to roam over there and just kind of, you know, fraternize with the Shelby guys, and you never know. You might uh, say, you know what, I really think I need another Shelby. What do you say to that?
4: Well, that's really terrific. I <laughs> wish I was going to be an Indy, but I'm not going to be. It seems like my calendar and anything that sounds like fun don't seem to cross over well. Uh, but, uh, you know, motor racing's fun, so that's the main
1: thing. That's the main thing. And you guys are really, really good at it. So, and again, congratulations on your Indy win, indie 500 win. Um, let's talk a little bit about you and how you got started in the racing. You really, we really didn't go into that, but like, you know, growing up and you're from basically the L.A. area, right? And that was kind of like the hub of hot riding, race cars, street racing, all the fun stuff. So... How did you uh, become addicted to the to the hobby, to the car world, so to speak?
4: Uh, like yeah, like a lot of Southern California people did, uh in my gen- from my generation, uh it was pretty hard not to fall into racing. It unless <laughs> you just didn't like cars. And I think a lot of Southern California people really uh really do still it's uh, still do still enjoy uh classic streetcars, uh, hot rods, and all of that. You know, Southern California started out probably, I guess, with lake bed racing first, and then it kind of transferred itself into a lot of things that we saw happen in the 60s. Uh, a lot of the industry in Southern California, the uh, uh, aerospace industry, had a lot of technicians and fabricators and uh, people that worked with their hands that transferred themselves uh, into the automobile uh, racing industry. Uh, people know about the famous people and there are a lot of people that probably should have been famous it all merged and and worked in the 60s I'm a child of the 60s I grew up in the 60s and uh, uh, loved motor racing from the very beginning of my life
1: Did you was there anybody in your family that was into cars, high riding racing that had an influence on you?
4: Uh, No my dad uh, had friends that uh, had a lot of exotic cars and uh um he was we went to the races. I went to the races as a kid, uh developed friendships with some of the people there and uh uh as soon as I could start uh, racing something myself, I did start. Um yeah, it just it progressed. You know, frankly the first my mom and dad were disappointed because the first word that I said was car. <laughs> not mom mom or dad. Uh so that kind of set the set the tone right there.
1: <laughs> and let me guess, your first Christmas toy was a car, right?
4: You well, know, yeah. I wish I could remember what it was. I, my memory's either gone now, vaporized, or I don't remember. <laughs> when, one or all of you, Bob. Uh, but uh, yeah, I had a lot of model cars when I was growing up. Built a lot of model cars, uh, and as soon as I could use my hands on cars, I did. Uh, and had friends like myself that we all had cars, and we had a great time doing that in so California.
1: When you um, were growing up, and, and obviously this is a question I, everybody gets asked, what was your first car?
4: Uh, my first car was a 55 Chevrolet. Okay. Uh, street, you know, street car, uh, street racing car. Really, everybody drag raced in Southern California somewhere, either Van Nuys Boulevard, Pasadena Boulevard, or somewhere else, uh, you know, on Friday night or Saturday night, depending on which locale you wanted. By Bob's Big Boy, that was the big deal. That's where everybody met and uh certainly developed some great friendships there and uh uh i loved road racing growing up and went to a lot of road races and uh so i met friends that were doing that they were a half a generation or even a generation in front of me and uh got to go to the racetrack with those people and uh, uh my first car was that my second car actually was a, uh i was getting ready to go to college and uh And my dad said, "Ah, that '55 Chevrolet is probably not going to work very well." I sold it to somebody that wanted to have it real badly. And uh, he said, "I've got a." He had a friend. His name was John. He was an auto wholesaler in LA. And he said, uh, uh, "John's going to go get your car at the auto auction, so you'll have something to drive for four years." And so I figured they were going to come back with a Volkswagen bug or something, you know, something like that. Uh Uh, And he said, "Oh, we got a car. It's a German car." He said it'll probably last you for four years. These guys come back from the yellow action with a 911S Porsche.
1: No way. A uh,
4: 69 911S. 69 911S. And a European version, so it had all European instrumentation inside, different engines, uh, the upgraded suspension and brakes, and so on. And frankly, the only thing I did with it for four years while in school was I changed the oil in it, and that was it. And uh, my dad was a little disappointed because when I got out of college, I wanted to go motor racing. I didn't want to continue on. He wanted me to be an attorney. Uh, didn't want to do that. And uh, um, so I sold the Porsche out of Delhi Times uh, and bought my first van, trailer, and Formula Ford so I could go racing with the proceeds. That's what I did. And uh, shortly after that, I started racing, uh, club racing in Southern California. And I, I was offered a job at the Jim Russell School at Willow Springs to be a driving instructor because I was doing pretty well. And uh, the guy that was there was going to England to race over there, so it was perfect timing for me. So I worked there for four years at the very beginning of uh, my working career as well as racing on the weekends simultaneously. So that worked out really well.
1: Well, now that's interesting. Um, the I, I, I'm kind of partial to Porsches a little bit, so do you, have you had other Porsches since then, by any chance?
4: No, I, no, I have not. I'd love to have one, uh, but I just... You know what? It would probably sit in the garage most of the time, and uh, it would seem like uh, maybe it'd be a great investment at this point in, in anybody's life to have something that has some value like that, that seems to appreciate if you look after it. But uh, uh, I've driven some, but I don't presently own one.
1: Um, let me ask you this: so, um, so back then, okay, so you, when you when you graduated from college after the four years, what you, what, what what was your major then? Because obviously, laws after that is you know another Not three for you.
4: Yeah, no, no, no! I had a double major in college. Uh, I was a double major, in political science and uh, economics.
1: Oh, we can, oh, really? Interesting. I
4: use both of those today, right? I use both of those today. But who would have thought? Yeah, who would have thought? Because I was pre-law, right?
1: Gotcha, gotcha.
4: Pre-law and uh, just, uh, just, I don't know, guys like me from my generation. Uh, Vietnam was going on, and uh, the idealistic people like myself had started in. School, when uh, Vietnam really ramped up, we became very unideal, uh, unidealistic, and we wanted to just get away from anything that represented uh, uh, cor- the corporate world or you name it, anything like that. Racing was a great avenue for me, so I just I just got after it after that and uh, uh, just kept working at it, and uh, I, I'm where I am today because of it.
1: When you were younger, then so, okay, so Riverside was a big track down there. I don't know if Tory Pines was still around when you were uh, growing up there in Southern Cal. And then, did you ever come up to Laguna Seca, Sears Point, places like that? I mean, did you go to any of the road races yeah, back in day?
4: Uh, oh, absolutely! As a kid, we'd go to races. Uh, I did. I don't remember Tory Pines. Uh, I don't remember going to Tory Pines. Let's say that. Okay. It was. It was no longer. It you know. It, it was as I recall. Tory Pines was. That was part of a military base at the time and that's where they were racing
1: right uh,
4: uh, from what I've been told and uh, but by, by the time I was old enough to remember it became a golf course hmm. uh, so uh, that area there anyway and uh, so I never went there. I did go to Santa Barbara Santa oh, Rosa yeah. Road races a couple of times. As a kid I went to Paramount Ranch, uh, which was the back lot for Paramount Studios. They only raced there one year uh, had been these club races there one year. Uh, Willow Springs, Laguna Seca, Phoenix, those are the places we would go, uh, go for races. Sonoma was opened in 1970, uh, former 5,000 race, though. I did go to that race. He was a spectator. Uh, it was open for a couple of years. And then the guy that ran the place or owned the place went into receivership and it slows down for quite a while. Uh, but then, it you know, it's active now, certainly. Uh, but I uh, went to Riverside a lot. I raced a lot of races at Riverside. I won, won a few, actually. Uh, a couple of big ones for me and uh, some others, too. Um, let's see. What other club racing tracks did I race up there? Hopeville, which was an airport track near Central California. And then we would go east in the summertime and race in the Midwest.
1: When you were spectating the racing, I mean, you got into racing, so let's just say around 70, 71, 72. Before then, while Trans Am and Can Am racing was still pretty big, did you get a chance to go to some of the Can Am and Trans Am races back then? Went went, to went a lot of them on the West Coast, yes. So I'm a huge Can Am. Uh, some of those
4: heroes race.
1: <laughs> I'm huge Can Am and Trans Am only because Can Am kind of like... Uh, No rules, so to speak. And then Trans Am, obviously, because I could identify with a Mustang, a Camaro, an AMC, and so on. And uh, so, to me, that was still raw racing. You referenced last week, we were talking a little bit about IndyCar, NASCAR. They've basically turned into spec racing. In my opinion, spec racing are, you know, okay. You know there's there you get all this it's just like in 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 certain boat racing classes. everything's identical. So where you've and and the one of the questions was is, you know, how do you make your cars go faster? So you said we're talking about friction and aerodynamics. That's about the only two things you can do. Back then, I think a lot of development, a lot of uh, experimentation um research, because the cars were basically rolling test beds, And I think those cars are really responsible where we're at today because they did all the dirty work, and now here we are today, and the only thing you can really do, if I understood you correctly from last week, was pretty much just refine what we have. Would that be a fair statement?
4: I think that's a good way to say it, yes. Uh, There's an awful lot of technology that goes on today in any form of spec racing that people don't really see, and people like ourselves don't really talk about it. Uh, but there's a ton of technology development going on today because of the finite nature of the separation point between the cars,
3: mm-hmm.
4: which you have in common with the better cars even in spec racing. And let's see, let's just uh, say IndyCar spec racing. Okay. We all have the same race car. We either have a Chevrolet or a Honda. We're on the same tires. So, and uh, compounding that or complicating that is the fact that they, they're they very restricted these days on the testing rules. So the on-track testing rules. They're not restricting the off-track testing rules. So if you think about what that actually means, the people think, oh, well, that means you use a wind tunnel and uh, maybe you do a little CFD, whatever. And it's way, way deeper than that now with the better heel teams in, in IndyCar racing. We have staffs of engineers that are doing nothing but... Uh, uh devoting energy toward uh, every aspect of the car away from the racetrack with every form of software development possible that, to understand the inter- to, how, to, how to separate yourself in a small way from your neighbor. And the second thing is is, is the drivers, even though the cars are the same, everybody says, oh, the cars go the same speed. There's still a significant difference between the, the, uh, the ability of the race drivers. It's not seen well because the racing is so close. But you normally will see it in a motor race, an IndyCar race. Well, let's just say, like, we just raced in Detroit, the street race in Detroit last weekend. The first three or four cars separated themselves by almost a whole lap by midway through the race. Uh, Now, the reason they did that was they had really good cars, but you had really good drivers in the cars. Uh, So you see that sometimes predominantly, let's say, more so at some races than others, but those are really the differences that you have. And then most of the teams now in IndyCar racing are multi-driver teams, multi-entry. And uh, there's an enormous amount of share between the drivers and the engineers for the drivers uh, by, on the race weekends, uh, taking the data that you have, analyzing it for drive style, uh, lateral accel- acceleration load, uh, how the tire reacts, how the that the driver wants uh, and, and all of those things. So there's an awful lot going on that uh, the average person probably will never be privy to see. It's unfortunate, but that's the reality of it. Because you don't want to give it away. In in the days that you're talking about, in the in the days of Can Am, what made those cars so fast besides raw horsepower was the level of the teams. The better teams were so far advanced compared to the rest. Number one and number two, the tires changed every weekend. Every weekend there was a tire war going on between Firestone and Goodyear in the Can Am series and they were showing up with new tires, new compounds, new constructions, stacks and stacks and stacked up every weekend, which created more speed every time so they go to Riverside and they would run and then the next weekend go to Las Vegas start And then the next weekend they go to Finnasteca. L- uh in the Midwest they go to Mid Ohio, Road America. Uh, and uh, every weekend those people would hustle up to build a stacks and stacks of tires for the better runners so the better guys had unlimited rubber and that created a lot of speed that uh, people just saw the track record speed broken tires contributed greatly to that
1: today like you mentioned so that you all have to run in the same tire so and you mentioned friction so i'm going to assume friction has to do with bearings aerodynamic is is kind of friction related okay Oil in the engine, tolerances, all that stuff comes into play, correct?
4: That is right, yep.
1: So what has been your experience? Let's talk a little bit, because I want to get into the e-gas and the gasoline, because you said next year you're going to be running some special gasolines. So let's talk a little bit about oils. The oils that you have available to you and the tolerances that are built in the engines, Um how significant is is, is is the oil itself? I mean, and, and and what are some of the things that you look for in an oil? And the reason I ask that is because, you know, that oil debate comes up all the time because there's a lot of us that say, well, you know, if you change your oil every two 3,000 miles in your car, you're fine. But then again, you know, there's certain oils, they say, well, you run this oil, you get better gas mileage, and the reason you get better gas mileage is because it creates less friction, and less friction is less heat. Less heat is performance. Well, that's...
4: I mean that—that's that's a good way of saying it. I don't know if I could say it any better than that.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, the—we uh, rely, in our case, with our our IndyCar program, we rely uh, wholeheartedly upon what uh, what Honda does for us. Honda Performance uh, builds our engines and looks after our engines. and supports our engines. with technicians at the racetrack, and they uh, have a huge facility in California that builds the engines for a lot of, for most of the, for all the Honda teams that race. Chevrolet, the counterpart of Chevrolet, does exactly the same thing. And they're constantly developing their product. Uh, The engines themselves are homologated, but then they can can revise the engine each year. There's a list of things that they can do. One thing is lubrication. How they lubricate the engine, the viscosity of the oil, uh, what the weight of the oil is. uh, And they're very, very cognizant of the fact that you don't want to carry around too much oil in your car. Uh, but in the race car, but you want the, the oil to, uh, as, we, as we're talking about here, reduce friction, but at the same time, uh, make sure the engine will, will last the appropriate amount of miles. We run in IndyCar racing today. We, we have a, a four-engine limit before we're penalized for the season. Each engine is meant to go 2,500 miles of racing. Uh, so that's 10,000 miles of racing during the entire season for four, four engines. And if you think about the revenue turn, the power level, all the things, that's, you, you would have never gotten away with that in the 60s and 70s in motor racing. Uh, you'd be lucky to get rid of the whole race weekend. So uh, um, the viscosity thing is a big deal. But the the uh, uh, research and development that goes on on lubrication is huge.
1: Well, the reason I ask that is, for example, I know when we used to build motors, you know, chrome was a big thing back in the day, okay? So, and most of your engines, your race engines, are dry sump systems, okay? So, which means the oil's pumped in there. And yep. you said, we don't want to carry around a lot of oil. So where I'm going with this is, that okay, so if we run less oil, but we have these lubricants that basically, the engines, uh, obviously, you know, spec engines are sealed. Most people don't know that, but they're sealed, and you can't touch them. They basically give them to you, drop them in the hole, and that's it. I did not even know if you, whether you changed it well or not in the cars, or you just have to kind of like, you know, and you work on everything else, and the motor's just like a separate little thing. But nonetheless, so do you think it'll eventually get to the point where we're going to have a lubricant of some kind, and we won't even be running oil because the engine will just run on these. You know, the parts will just kind of, you know, work together in harmony with all these other components, and there won't be hardly any friction at all, and won't be hardly anywhere. And um, it'll get to the point where that's it. We can't go any further. Has has that is is that ever a part of a discussion? In other words, you reach a point you, you reach a point of diminishing returns, so to speak.
4: It hasn't been part of a discussion, um, but frankly, I mean, what we run today is not what the way we run the engine today. With what you're talking about, with uh, with, the, with with lubrication, uh, is nothing like we ran five six years ago. So they continue to develop uh, product uh, to. Be almost friction proof uh, with, uh, with with how the the tolerances of the engine are built in relationship to the lubrication property that they have. Uh, so I suspected five years it'll be totally different than it is today. Uh, I, I have no doubt. Uh, it used to be in IndyCar Racing that the crew chief, chief mechanic, not only built the car, but he also built the engines. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, so today, that doesn't happen. The chief mechanic today is totally responsible for a race car, an IndyCar race car, but he's responsible for uh, uh, the completion of the car, all the components on the car. And that includes the engine installation. Um, and if there's any problem with the engine at all, it just comes out and is given back to, in the r case, to Honda.
1: Okay. Let's talk about this e-gas, this new gasoline. Tell us about the fuels that you're going to be running um, in the in the series next year, I think that's kind of you, you. mentioned that there'll be a change in fuels. I think
4: It's terrific. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it'll be a seamless change for us. It's already between Honda and Chevrolet uh, on their engine dynos. They run a lot of miles, thousands of miles already, and uh, with transient dyno and regular dyno running. Um, but uh, the engine, that, the the fuel that we're going to run next year is to be a byproduct of chair cane actually. Uh, so the waste material from sugarcane after it's harvested is going to be the, the the base for the product that, that we're going to put in the fuel tank next year. Uh, there's no power loss. Uh, very bio it's a biodegradable fuel. Um, and uh, IndyCar is making a statement by what they're doing. Shell is producing it, um, and uh, we'll have it in the cars testing this winter when it was when the race season is over. There is an engine testing program or a uh, an engine testing program going on with Chevrolet and Honda for the 2024 IndyCar engine. That fuel will be used, I believe, uh, starting with the next test they do in uh, the end of June. Um, and, uh, uh, but I know I've, I can't speak for Chevrolet, but I know Honda has t- uh, a lot of miles, thousands of miles on this engine on, on the uh, on the fuel already. It's really a great thing if you think about it. Uh, <laughs> it's not coming out of the ground. It's not taking petroleum product out of the ground, and it's actually doing the same thing that uh, a petroleum-based product would do. Uh, so at the, at the moment, you're not going to find it in a pump, a, pump, a pump fuel station anywhere, but uh, uh, we get in 55-gallon barrels.
1: So now, so basically, just in simplified terms for my listeners, we're basically talking about a really sophisticated, advanced form of ethanol, correct? Would that be a fair statement? A really high potent ethanol think, fuel.
4: Yeah, I think that's you know, that's a good way to describe it. Uh, you know, ethanol was, is is produced from a is a corn byproduct. Right. Uh, so very very similar, I suppose. Yeah. So now, the, the, I, I think the difference, though, frankly, the difference is ethanol is really really caustic.
1: Yes, and
4: frankly, uh, and this is not by comparison. So if there was a difference between the two, all of the processes are the same. I say that's the biggest difference between the fuels.
1: Now, does it have an octane rating? It probably
4: does, but I don't know what it is.
1: All right. So let me these these. The, let's go back to the engines. Whether it's a Ford or, or a Chevrolet or a Honda, these engines that you're running today, we all know that compression makes power. And then for the longest time, in the 70s and 80s, you know, we're down to 7 and 8 to 1, you know, kind of like we were in the 30s and 40s and stuff like that. But they realize that, you know, racing engines run 13, 14. I mean, I ran 13 to 1 motors back in the 70s when I was street racing. So, you know, and some of those cars were running 17, 18, you know. Um, So your racing engines that you have today, um, you turn, what, close to 10,000 RPMs or more on some of those cars? And aren't you running like 13, 14 um, compression ratios? Well, I'm not supposed to say what that is. I've signed a document. Oh, okay. Then that's okay. I won't. I won't put you on the spot. I won't put you on the spot. You're,
4: you're, no, but uh, you know, you're you're pushing in the right direction.
1: Okay. So basically, we know compression makes power, and that's and and, and they finally figure that out. But in order to have a successful engine to run on compression, you got to have octane. So I'm just going back to the basics, like when I was a little, you know, street racer kid, and I'm thinking, okay. But so we're, so we're kind of like still taking, we. it's fair to say that we still take a lot of old school stuff, and we take that knowledge and we refine it today, but the basics haven't changed. All we do is because of technology and computers and software and this and that, we can just make it state of the art. That's probably the best way to sum it up?
4: I think
1: that's a good way to summarize that, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, what else can we look forward to in racing? In other words, as a race team, race team manager, how far in advance, how many years in advance do you look forward um, when you're when you're contemplating? Okay, our future race team, two years out, four years out, you know, and so on. How uh, how many years in advance do you kind of look forward to things? And then, um, are you able to? If you see something in the future, are you allowed to take some technology that Let's say some future technology that you say, oh, hey, wow! Can we apply that today? I mean, am I putting the cart before the horse here a little bit, or help me out?
4: Not really. I mean, I I think uh, race teams generally are uh, what they forecast is is how far in front the uh, all of us represent a uh, car manufacturing company in some way or other. Okay. If you have a full factory deal, that's one thing. If you're if you have a semi factory, you're supported by a factory. Uh, that's how you forecast where you're going. <clears throat> you either forecast it with the existing manufacturer, or you're working hard to find another one. Uh, one or the other. So in our case, right now, uh, we have long-term contracts with Honda. We have a long for IndyCar racing. We have a long long-term contract with uh, General Motors for a Cadillac project uh, that will become LMDH next year in sports car racing globally. Uh, we'll run a team overseas as well as a team in the United States, but. Uh, we'll race uh, global sports car races uh, and converge on Le Mans 24. That project goes uh, several years past 24. So there's a, quite a bit of forecasting going on with that. And then we also race in the Extreme E. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about that last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, that's a, right now for us, that's a five-year project. So we forecast way down the road with that. In terms of the advancement of technology there as those five years each year, they allow you to do more and more things there. Uh, so we we work pretty hard down the road to uh, uh, be really well in advance of the rules that change.
1: How much influence do race teams have when the racing sanctioning bodies um, want to change rules? In other words, can is it are you guys in a situation where you can put your foot down and say, "No, we're not doing this"? Um, or do you guys just say, mm, let's debate the issue a little bit and let's kind of hash it out. Or do you just say, all right, whatever.
4: Um, well, if you want to equalize the competition, change the rules. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that, that's probably, uh, uh, the bottom line statement for what you've just said, the, the way you've asked your question. Um, the sanctioning bodies, in our case, uh, both in sports car racing and in Indy car racing, they will come and ask us questions. Mm-hmm. As a team, they'll want our opinion about what we think about various things, whether it be on course, off course, what goes on with the cars, um, lots of other things besides that. But they, they listen to, they try to get a, uh, a sounding board from the race team so they understand the direction and how it's going to affect... Uh, in these days, they're, they're, mo- they're really interested in how it's going to affect uh, the economy of our race team. In other words, they don't want to change people so quickly that they've, off- up- that they've created uh, 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 hardship on the teams. They'd rather have planned obsolescence with the parts on your race car. All the sanctioned bodies work really hard for that now these days, uh, because you, with the way that we all race, where you're racing almost, you know, continually, so your season is over, uh, you're way ahead on your product. So it's really not fair buying, the, and the only way that you can race week in and week out is to be far ahead on the replacement parts that are already rebuilt for your race cars. And so if they decide that they're going to outlaw something something inside your transmission or something in, in your suspension or uh, something that's significant in terms of the spend on your aerodynamic the aerodynamic property of your car, they're going to delay that. They're either going to give you plenty of notice so that your parts are uh, wiped out, or they're going to give you significant notice for the following year. And they do a good job of that.
1: Teams. How often do new teams get into the sport, so to speak? I mean, right now you've got... How many teams are there in, in IndyCar, or something like 25 or 30? And there are different teams? Well, right now.
4: Yeah, the entries on the grid at uh, most of the of the racetrack the race we've done, with the exception of Indy, have been. I think we had twenty five at, at Detroit. Okay, we've had twenty four to twenty eight at every race we've been at this year. That's up about four from last year, really on a on an let's say a seasonal basis. Uh, so more and more, uh, and there's some great new young owners in the series. So it's moving along. It's uh, there's a. Uh, great renaissance going on in, in IndyCar with the increased uh, um, ownership and uh, entries.
1: Are they encouraging that? I mean, is the sanctioning bodies are they encourage that? Do other team owners want that? Do you want more teams, more competition, more cars on the track, so to speak? I mean,
4: uh, yeah, I, I, I think you do. Um, I, I think the the vitality that IndyCar racing has and the closeness of racing. Uh, it's now contributed greatly by the increased number of cars that uh, uh, arrive for an event and, and race in the event. Yeah.
1: How about in uh, uh, in the GT world, in the road racing worlds? Is this, is the same theory hold true for them as well?
4: Um, I think uh, that there's a that what's really happening uh, is this global unification of sports car racing. Okay. Uh, they've finally gotten back together uh, the the US side the North American side and the sanctioning body that controls the governing body that controls uh, world sports car racing Mm -hmm. they've set about to try to equalize the rules between uh, the WEC championship, the Asian championship and uh, the American championship Uh, they want to have equal footing for all those championships so they can converge at any time and race with each other Uh, That involves balance of what's called BOP, balance of performance. But uh, uh, the reality is is what's happening now with this LMBH category is they're going to equalize prototype racing uh, in some fashion as we go forward beginning in 2023. All new cars. uh, There's now... A lot more engine manufacturers that are, that are coming in now. Car companies coming into the series as a result of this unification or standardization of what's going on with the performance of cars. And uh, uh, I think you know Le Mans 23 is going to be pretty exciting. A lot of the same cars that race at Le Mans will most likely race at Daytona this year, this year, this coming year at the beginning of the year, and many of them will be at Sebring. So uh, endurance racing is will be really ramping up uh that part's really good in terms of gt racing what they've done is they simplified the category of gt racing globally. Now, uh you know we had gte in europe gt, GT lm in america that category is gone they have now gtd just one category for all gt cars and they have an amp category and a professional category uh but virtually the same cars uh, just with professional drivers in one area, and a professional with an amateur in the other in the other classification, the other part of that, the AM class, um, and there's an increase in uh, manufactured support because of all of that. Because it's now the fields are deeper, heavier, and uh, there's a lot more activity going on there.
1: Well, it sounds like racing's got a very, very bright future, and that's good because I'm all excited about that. But the sad news is we just crossed the checkered flag, the checkered line here, and uh, we're out of time again, Mike. But, again, I want to thank you very much okay, for uh, Share some yeah. stories with us. Um, I wish you guys and the Canassi team uh, all the best of luck. And uh, I'll probably bump into you guys at probably one of the road races, Daytona, Sebring, something like that, because I usually go to those events. So, uh, In the meantime, uh, well, we're at,
4: uh, yeah, we're at Road America this weekend. That's a lineage place, so it's great to go there. Uh, we're there with IndyCars this weekend, so uh, looking forward to going out
1: to race this weekend. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, Mike, thank you very much, and uh, look forward to seeing you again. And I'm not sure where, but I'm sure it's going to be on a racetrack someplace nearby.
4: <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. And if you need a Porsche or a Shelby, look me up. I'll help you out. <laughs> okay, thanks. I want to thank my very special guest, Mike Hall. He is the uh, managing director for Chip Ganassi Racing, and they're going to Road America this weekend, and they're racing Indy cars. But he'll be in Florida with uh, at Daytona soon, and at Sebring with their GT cars. And uh, we look forward to seeing him down there, and maybe we'll hang out with him in the pits a little bit. So, anyway, thank you very much, Mike. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgia Radio Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. right here on the Talk Radio Network, you can hear dialogue between me, moi, yours truly, Kind of a racing guy, you know, and uh, some of the most fascinating legendary names in motorsports. But music, we got some musical guests coming up here for you next couple of weeks. So uh, don't forget to check out that. Follow us on Facebook or what's our social media stuff on? Oh, and the Twitter,
0: that Twitter thing, as they say. Uh, That Twitter thing, uh, yeah. uh, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you can find the show on YouTube right now, actually, and um, that's basically it. They're all Nostalgic Reading Cars or Gulfstream
1: Motorsports or NRC Live, so if you try one of those three, you'll get us. That's right. And if you happen to get lost you're somewhere up in the Smoky Mountains, don't forget to check out Tale of the Dragon. <laughs> uh,
0: FLACarshows.com for car shows all over the great Sunshine State.
1: Yep, and, and Rip Shack
0: Sh- will give you. We'll figure out when you're going to open, and we'll let everybody know.
1: Absolutely, and don't forget this weekend. If you don't have anything planned, or actually next weekend, up in Indy is also the 47th Shelby American Automobile Club. So uh, those guys there, and then check out our good friends at HSR. They got some events coming up. Uh, it's all right here on Nostalgia radio and Cars. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.